think it took us about four years to get to the million dollar mark. And then it started going up. You know, our growth was in the area of 80% for the next five or six years. Took us through to 2015 when we sold Intersight into the Osirna Group. My name is Matt Harriman. This is the Achieve and Enjoy podcast, where we explore the relationship between work and happiness, achievement and joy, and success and contentment. One of the ways that we do that is by interviewing really interesting people that you've probably never heard of that have something to teach us about achieving their definition of success and enjoying the path that they take to get there. Today, I've got one of my best friends on earth, um, one of my favorite people on earth, Peter Tyler. Hi, Pete. Thanks. That might be an exaggeration on the, on the best people on earth, but I'll take the rest of it for sure, Brett. Yeah, well, that's my opinion, so that's fine. <laughs> so I got a bunch of interesting questions from people that they wanted me to ask you, but we'll get there when we get there. I want to start with a little bit about like your, your background. So if I recall correctly, you've had, you know, multiple exits in your career, right? So you had a business that you started early on innovative, right? Uh, yeah. And that exited for some number of dollars. <laughs> that was the freedom maker. That, yeah, the freedom maker. And then was Intersight right after that? Ended up staying with Slumberjay after that exit. So we exited to Slumberjay and I ended up working for them as kind of a continuation of that exit for probably four years almost. Including a move to Calgary to be a product champion, which is their idea of product development leader. Um, yeah. Excellent. Slumber Day is great training. So I learned a bunch about, you know, managing product and managing big projects, things like that through that stint, but big companies and me don't get along. So I got to Calgary eight, one of the worst experiences of my life. And it was my birthday and he was at my birthday. And as I was complaining, he said, why don't you come work for us? Interesting. We'll dig more into the, the inner site. And, and after that, how did you make that jump from full-time employment to starting your own thing? Go back, because I don't, I don't know that story from earlier days. Yeah, so, so my career started in the oil business in Calgary, worked for Shell and Petro Canada, and then took a year off and just traveled around the world and saw stuff and kind of kept doing that. When I came back, everybody who I'd worked for at Petro Canada had all left and joined this software company in Calgary called Merak. And I'd used it a little bit at the time, so I had some clue what it was. Went out for an interview with this guy called Pete Stewart, who I'd done some work for, and got home at like two in the morning, not really remembering how the interview had gone. And the next day I was offered a job. And that got me into Barack. Uh, I worked in the software business in Calgary for a while. Then I got into a consulting group that was led by a guy called Neil Buckley and opened his offices in the U.S. as kind of a subsidiary of what Merak was. It all merged back together and I got put in charge of Latin America in 95, 96, and was in Latin America when Morak sold the Slumber Day. And what I realized at that point was that you needed to own a company if you were going to make anything when a big transition happened. I looked after, you know, probably only 10% of their worldwide revenue, but was one of their biggest growth markets. And mm. uh, I got a bonus that represented less than half of my annual salary for doing all that and went, Ooh, that's, that's not fair when the guy paid out in the, you know, tens of millions and a bunch of us who were involved with that all started realizing where we'd been in this middle management layer. We all decided we were going to start a company. We 
We're going to create this consulting company that was going to grow across this six guys. I still know all of them, but all of us had different exit capabilities. I was in Latin America, et cetera. The guy I ended up partnering with was in the U.S. Another guy that I should have was actually partnered with him, moved to England at the time and was working there. So it ended up being that me and this guy out of Vasquez were the only two left in the U.S. to start a company. So we started this company to do fiscal modeling around Slumberjay stuff and consulting. Jason Ambrose, another guy you may have heard of, started a company called Palantir in the, U in the UK with a guy called Raj Sen. Thomas Lindgren went out and started a whole pile of mobile phone apps in Sweden. And all of us started companies and all of us ended up being successful. So it would have been really interesting if we'd done it together. But it was really that decision that we all wanted to own something that really put us all into that boat and all, all five of us came out extremely well in the long run. And some of us cycled back and ended up working together again later. Was that desire to, to own something, was it purely financial or was there anything else to it? No, I mean, it was a combination. One of the wonderful things about Morac as a company, it gave people incredible autonomy and, you know, opportunity, right? I was 25 and was running the Latin American division of a software company, right? That just getting, getting paid like 60,000 a year wouldn't have happened in any other company. So we all liked that autonomy and we're just like, we can't work for this big company. We'd end up in Solverjay, you know, too much overhead, not enough control, not enough ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it, which is the real drive. Like we all wanted to A, be successful, but we kind of wanted to have our own way with things. And I think that's something I always took forward in all the companies I worked with is I liked making sure people who were around me could do what they wanted to do and were supported in it as much as possible and just remove the barriers. If you're not a level three, you're not doing job Y, right? And yeah. that kind of stuff sucks really for most people. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I can uh, relate to that. I mean, that makes it obvious where some of the decisions that you made and how you ran things with Intersight in the U.S. And after that, it's pretty obvious where all that came from. The other thing is I like changing jobs, right? So early on, I never did the same job for more than 24 months. And usually it was like 12 to 18. That slowed down a little bit as I got older, I guess. You know, in reality, I was the ops manager of Branner site for like 10 years almost, but yeah. there still changes within that. But up until then, there was no position I'd held more than a couple of years. And I, I kind of believe in that, that you have to move quickly and change what you're doing, or at least change your environment or you stagnate. You, you don't really learn how to make things happen. Let's talk about the early, early Intersight days. So you, you came to Houston to set up the U.S. operation for Intersight. Right. Um, what was the revenue at that point? The U.S. revenue was like 70000 when I joined the company. And I joined in 2009, uh, 2008, basically. And if you remember, eight was really good. Nine was really bad. Um, the oil price dropped from a hundred and something dollars when I packed my things up in Calgary to like $40 by the time my shipment showed up in Houston. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and the 50,000 of software that we had or 70,000 of software we had was really a bunch of guys who just said, oh, it's only like 4k. Yeah, give me a copy, put it on my credit card. So of those clients, we only actually had one that we knew of the user. At the time I got down here, we, our revenue was limited to one company called Swift that had like three or four copies. And I was basically working very hard to make sure we didn't lose those. That was the scariest thing I'd ever done because I moved down here and realized that 
what had been kind of promised really didn't exist. And we had to start from scratch. Well, it was just messaged differently. <laughs> it's like any company you buy, right? You really need to make sure you dig under the covers. The unfortunate thing is if you're buying a company, you get allowed to do that. When you're joining yeah. a company, you don't really get to do that until you're already in. Um, yeah. So no regrets in the long run, but at the time, you know, I paid a, I bought into the company. I physically bought shares in that company at a valuation that, you know, really probably did need at least 75,000 in U.S. revenue, not like, <laughs> I think we had 50,000 worldwide was the actual number. So yeah, it worked out in the long run, but it was a long run. So I joined in 2013, like August of 2013, and there were customers that oh, we yeah. had email addresses and phone numbers to, and <laughs> that we could verify, you know, usage and, and all that stuff. So how, how were those early days and how did it grow? Cause I, I know the numbers and I don't know what you can legally share on annual revenues and stuff like that were, so I'll let you do that. But I know where it ended up getting to, and it was, yeah. it was a lot more than 70,000. Walk through that story from showing up with $40 oil and, and jack shit worth of clients and what'd you do? So what did we do? We, we focused on the one client we had to make sure that we made them happy and it actually worked because early on it was pretty slim pickings for how well Intersight worked and what it did. And we spent a fair amount of time looking at what it should do. I was working at an office that was costing me $75 a month in this place called Caroline Collective with like leaky roofs and air conditioners that weren't really working that well. <laughs> uh, and I convinced this guy in Wardle to come join me. And he showed up in this and he's very Latin. He likes his nice office. He's the only guy in our company that always had a door to his office the whole way through. And he showed up and wanted to help me sell. And he looked at this and went, what are you doing? But he recognized the potential of what we had for software and my drive to make it happen. And the two of us started kind of working, really door knocking, uh, showing people what we had, asking the right questions. So the real trick to the whole business was to figure out what the clients wanted and what they were struggling with. And we had this one piece early on that did some kind of drill scheduling and the shale revolution was in full swing. And we realized that nobody had a way to forecast their capital based on anything like a drill schedule. And people were asking that question, you know, by the time we got to 2010, we're asking the question of how many rigs should I be running? How yeah. do I at planning and what does it look like? And if you looked at the things they were doing, they were poor, really. I mean, guys with spreadsheets kind of just said, oh, every drill rig's going to take a month. And they did this month to month kind of switch thing with no control of spending, no control of how it panned out and no ability to do what ifs really. They just had this one model that, you know, we ran into one and we got to the point where we could copy them. And this was a major, actually it was one of the top three majors in the world. And we couldn't duplicate their model. And we realized they had this model that said, we build the drill rig schedule out, but we're limited to producing this much volume. So we take the volume that the drill schedule gives us, adjust it to match the volume that we were told we were supposed to have, take all the extra volume and move it out into the future four years out and divide it by 10 years to spread it and smooth it. So there are things that they were presenting to management were completely unreproducible and completely bogus. And people were doing that all over the place. And so yeah. the people at the top had no real clue what was happening down at the bottom because nobody could easily build it and people at top couldn't check it. And we decided that, you know, giving people a tool in that environment was worth something. And that story 
really took Intersight to the next level across everything. It made a market, right? There, there were no real planning tools before it, right? Everything was stuff hacked together. It, it made a, it made its own market. It put a front end. So I'd been in the economics game and what it did is put a front end on the input data for the stuff that we had been selling in companies like Barack and, and Ogre and blah, blah, blah. People used to generate the volumes and capital profiles in Excel and put them into these economics things and say, here's what it looks like. But nobody was thinking about, you know, what is completion and when can it be done and what is a drill and when can it be done or any of the parts. They were just, you know, capital cost, volume, price. We created a tool to let people think about the, the inputs of that. And that was game changing for the oil industry at the time. And that really where that market came from. Nothing but spreadsheet. And it was you know, highly successful because we took things that used to take weeks and they'd be able to out. So say whatever you can or, or, or can't say about the, the revenue, but, you know, call it near zero in 09. Um, you had a couple of customers. Like, where did it get to? Where were, where were the exits? Like, how many digits? Like, you can say all that. Took a while. The million dollar mark's always the hardest mark. Right. Well, it depends who you thought to. The hundred thousand mark is always an exciting mark because it means you're actually got enough revenue to maybe cover some of your costs and, and keep your head afloat. The million dollars, like, wow, we're actually making enough money to pay people. And there are serious clients interested in keeping this going. I think it took us about four years to get to the million dollar mark. And then it started going up. You know, our growth was in the area of 80% for the next five or six years. Took us through to 2015 when we sold Intersight into the Osirna group. Basically, Wayne Sam had decided he was going to be the person who put this whole market segment called planning together and convinced a PE firm called Rubicon Technologies to come in and back him to do that. So he used other people's money to buy up all these independent, successful players of which one, two, three, four, five, six had been formed by people who had been involved in Merak and left. So it basically took the Merak group that had been around in the late nineties and put all their independent companies back together. And that was the next play, right? So we, we exited around the $10 million mark in revenue into that, you know, it then continued to grow within the Acerna world. And, you know, at the end of the day, the interstate part of that business was still well over a third of its annual income. Yeah despite it being, you know, not by any means the most expensive tool to implement in the reserves tools were in the kind of million dollars of implementation, whereas ours was still in that one to 250,000 range for most companies. And we, yeah. we had a couple of companies over a million in income, in revenue by the time of CERN exited. From, from my story, so when I left Chesapeake and joined, you know, you at, at Intersight, total culture shock because Chesapeake was my first real job. And I found quickly that I was also allergic to big companies, but you know, it had, it was a country club at the time, right? This was peak Aubrey McClendon days. And there was, you know, 15% match on the 401k. There was a person in charge of absolutely everything. And then I show up to the inner side office and nobody shows up until like 845 when Josh Groves lets me in to the office. There's beer bottles everywhere. Like I don't have a desk. Like there's a empty bottle of tequila sitting on the printer, which is also next to a sink. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. 
And not to mention this office is in the middle of an apartment complex and it shares oh, a building cool. like a child care or something. Uh, just, I don't know, not what you would envision. Independent school. It was affordable space. It was real fucking clear why you didn't invite me to the office before I said yes. But anyway, all, all of that worked out and everything. But what was really apparent, like really quick was just the people. Like the people got along, they enjoyed working together. Like there was issues like any group of people and stuff, but like it was a special group. Like me, Josh, Caitlin, Leslie, we all got hired around the same time. You had a separate batch. There was a few others that were, that were hired before that, like making that group come together, like forming that group. I want to know like how much of that was intentional and how much of that was just luck. So I think, you know. A chunk of it was intentional, right? We wanted to hire people who got along because what I recognized early was that if I could get people to work 24 seven and by work, I don't mean actually put pen to paper, but be engaged in what we did so that if something needed to be done in the middle of the night, they didn't mind doing it. And they knew that the next day they could sleep in till four if they wanted. I wanted people who were part of a group. And I have found that early on in my other ventures, same sort of thing, right? If you make it enjoyable to be at work, people work better, right? So, you know, beers in the fridge, grab one when you feel like it, food around, you know, shoot, we did taco Thursdays or Fridays forever, right? And that, that was on, you know, we always had somebody go get it, but they just expensed it back. That was all kind of interesting stuff. I was really big on making sure that the work environment was fine. And the other part was, you know, you tried to hire people you got along with. So most of my interview stuff was about a, are they smart? And then B, do we, do we actually gel? I mean, 90% of our interviews happen at bars or lunches or, you know, someplace in a social setting. So I understood what it would be like to be with people socially. That was on purpose because I didn't want to work with people who were nine to fivers and went home and didn't interact beyond that because you get tons of value out of the social interaction of people. It was intentional. Now it was lucky as well. I had a really good headhunter who knew how to find people. And then we got rid of a fair number of people. If we actually go back and think of how many people either left of their own accord because they didn't fit in or, you know, left because they weren't working out. Very few of those were people who weren't there and afterwards successful. No, they were smart guys, right? And they went off and were successful in other companies or in other spots, but they weren't going to fit into our team. And so I think that's the other part was we were very specific about making sure that the people we had got along and added the value we wanted. And if they didn't, we either encouraged them to move on or, or don't. You were much better about actually pulling a knife out and stabbing people than I was. <laughs> you made me. The only um, guy I had to fire an intern while he was still working for us. <laughs> well done. Yeah, it, it had to be done. Uh, <laughs> I think what you said is is interesting because I think a lot of the conversation about work-life balance and happiness and all of the stuff focuses on like minimizing the amount that you're working so that you can go enjoy other stuff. I don't believe that it has to be that way. That time at Intersight and my time now, like the amount of time that I'm working is couldn't be more different. You know, when I was at Intersight, it was, you know, long hours late nights, like a lot of times, but like you said, I enjoyed it. You know, we were on a mission together and having fun doing it. 
So whatever the number of hours were, 60 plus per week, 70, whatever, like I was working a lot more and really, really enjoyed it. And now I probably don't put in more than 40 hours a week. And I'm also very, very happy. So like the number of hours, I feel like that's not the thing to optimize for happiness. Yeah, I don't think it has to be, right? I mean, what you want to do is make sure you enjoy your job so that when you're doing it, you don't notice that you're doing it. And also, you don't sacrifice other things, right? I mean, I'm a work hard, play hard kind of guy. I put in long hours. I think about work all the time. But I mean, shoot, we used to take off at 2 o'clock and go out on the boat. I used to take the whole summer off. I mean, I think you, yeah. guys, you guys showed up and I think in June. And basically, I with, drove up to Calgary with my RV. <laughs> July 1st, it didn't come back to August. Yeah. When you, when you say work hard, play hard, you actually mean play. Like most, most companies that say that that's just a cover for like corporate alcoholism, I think. Oh, <laughs> but, but for you, it's go out on a boat. It's go skydiving. It's go, go karting. Like it's actually yeah. play. Yeah. I mean, look at the mud runs we did. I mean, we even yeah. we convinced the entire team to go do a 5k mud run where half of the people in that run could barely walk 5k. And we did it together. We walked most of it and got to the other side. It was things like that. And that was my drive. I was impressed that everybody decided to do it. I've always been really driven to do things with my spare time. I yeah. don't watch TV. I, well, I do watch TV, but I try not to watch TV. I'd much rather go for a run or go for a hike or go for a ski or go for a fly or whatever. That's a good segue to another question. How the fuck do you have so much energy all the time? When I texted the group and asked, hey, what should I ask Peter? Like that came up. I think that was the first one. Uh, my mom and dad, I think, right? We just, you know, you think I have lots of energy? Go try my sister out. She hasn't changed jobs like I have. She's been at the same company since she finished school and she's six years older than I. But she lives on the side of a ski hill and her idea of work, she comes home from work, gets on her bike, bikes up the hill in the summer, skis up the hill in the winter. She never stops. She, I don't think she cooked a meal in her life. Her idea of a good meal is something she can grab out of the fridge and just keep going and raise yeah. two kids that way as well. And I think I was brought up the same way. We just were always going. We spent two months in an RV or a, or a station wagon every summer from the time I was three out climbing mountains and stuff. There was yeah. no sitting around in my family. And that just sticks with you. Once you've got to the point where sitting around isn't really something you should do, you just don't. It sounds like it's just a, a habit. Your right. default is motion. Yeah. And I do have ADD. I didn't know that until I had a kid and I was telling my mom I had this child and the child was, you know, having problems concentrating and all this stuff and looked like they had ADD. And my mom just went, yeah, what did you expect? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? What did I expect? She goes, well, you have it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that helped. In order to keep anything going, you got to keep changing your focus. So like by moving and being active, it definitely deals with the fact I have problems concentrating unless I've got energy. Sounds familiar to when, you know, we were analyzing my son's defiance. And you're like, yeah, he's, he's really defiant a lot of times. And my wife looks at me and she's like, yeah, I wonder where he got that from. <laughs> yeah, exactly it, right? Yeah. Reverse psychology worked very well on me as a child. That's for sure. Right. Until I figured it out. How do you, going back to, you know, forming that group. So I think the things that we did, you know, as a group, the culture at work and the habits that we had, you know, it was bred to be fun. And that's the main thing that I think of. Like there was parts that sucked about it, running nine different 
models for shell in the middle of the night because the scripting engine didn't work because we sold it before it actually worked and <laughs> that, yeah. that wasn't that wasn't fun but so much of it was going back to you know the hiring piece and you know this is a lot more prevalent and better understood now but hiring for bit or hiring for just people getting along it's really easy for like discrimination to hide in that and to end up not being inclusive and diverse and and things like that because straight white guy has a lot of straight white guy friends you know yeah. <laughs> how do you think about that and and like no criticism or at all about like that kind of stuff but it's it's definitely a thing that like as we think about hiring practices and like building equitable businesses and and stuff like that it it needs to be thought about it's a real challenge i mean i'm going to credit it with just being canadian by background i grew up in montreal there were three people of color in my entire high school and they were just people that when i was a best friend one was a basketball player like you just didn't where i grew up a lot of the things that are really evident here in segregation and things like that just didn't exist right i mean people were people and i think that helped now in hindsight for me it became incredibly interesting being here because when i grew up it was french versus english and it was as racist and discriminatory as you could almost get in hindsight like i was bad no question about it that's changed my attitudes changed through time and all that but if i look back and go wow that that was very similar in property and i think i figured that out in my late 20s and and started when i moved to houston really and went oh okay we need to deal with that the other part was we hired people that fit in and i liked people who are different i mean part of that was that, you know i traveled all over the world my parents pushed me to travel you know, I've met people from everywhere and realized that smart people exist everywhere in the world. And the one truth that I got from the year and a half I traveled around the world was that, you know, we can think whatever we want, but everybody's the same, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to have a family. Everybody wants to deep down inside. They want to make other people happy too. There's yeah. exception to the rule. There's exception to the rule everywhere, but 95, 99%, whatever number you want to call it are good people. And. There's no reason to suspect otherwise. And if you go in with the fact that everybody's going to be good, then it's easier. And I don't yeah. think I ever addressed it directly. At the very least, I liked hiring women. We had always had an exorbitant ratio of women engineers, considering how many women engineers there were within the oil and gas sector. And that was true within Intersight. That was true mm -hmm. innovative before that. And that was true with Merak Latin America, where girls had a very difficult time being in the oil patch in Latin America at the time. And I had two that worked for me, both in consulting roles, one in a sales role. And we made sure that they got treated properly all the time. And, and mm -hmm. for a while in my career, I had to deal with it. I mean, I was talking to, I literally had conversations with vice presidents at YPF saying, Hey, you can't have your employees do this to my employee. And I realized that these people were as good, if not better, because being, and maybe that's one of the things I, I recognized in girls who are in engineering fields. You've got to be better, right? Unfortunately, because it's a boys game, as you pointed out, people who can survive in there tend to be spectacular. And I think yeah. the people that we still deal with, you know, we can go through and name all the people that we knew as consultants and as clients that were all spectacular, not going to name them right here, but you know, anybody who hears this, they know who they are and you think how many of them we tried to hire or talking to helping us and still are involved with what we do because they are so good. Yeah. And, and I think the, the traits that, you know, you were looking for and that I definitely adopted were akin to horsepower. 
Like we need intelligence, we need drive, we need that kind of stuff. And, and those things show through, I think, kind of no matter who you are. The one regret early on was that it did mean that your work-life balance was a bit skewed. It would have been a pretty hard place to be as a pregnant woman early on. I don't know whether I regret that. You know, I guess I do sort of, but it was the kind of culture we put together. And I don't have a good answer on how you make that work properly within a small startup. I wish I did. I think it's a challenge. You know, once we got larger, no problem. But when you're small, it's, it's harder. And that's our, I think that's a challenge the industry needs to figure out and face because it, it shouldn't be that way. I think you're, you know, making work suck less deals with that a lot. You're kind of looking at how do you reduce your hours, keep your family balance better and get through these and still produce the results that the companies need to be produced. And I think that's, you know, a productivity thing. I still love the productivity experiment. That was way late in my career and it totally changed the way I looked at work. You're talking about Chris Bailey's book yeah. and, and workshop. No, I'm, yeah. I'm listening to his third book just came out pretty recently and listening to it now. I think about that a lot. And those early, early stage startups is traditionally, it's very much a grind and it's very much going hard and long hours and, and all of that stuff. And we haven't had that. We also haven't had the, you know, meteoric growth that a lot of people have, but I think, I think I see a lot more of these hybrid businesses where it's not such an investment upfront, right? There's other ways to make money along the way earlier stage. And I, I don't know, I, I feel like the bar goes up for, for everything else, like productivity and effectiveness and your market fit and all of those things to avoid working 80 hour weeks. You have to be really good on all the other stuff. Yeah. You can't, you can't afford to waste time. So you got to yeah. keep it focused on what is going to give you the biggest return for your time investment. And typically yeah. that's the right thing to do anyways. If you can actually order the things you have to do in a day and pick the thing that's going to change everybody more, that is how you become the most productive. And if you look at guys who run big companies, that is what they do every single day, all day yeah. long. The guys who are CEOs of huge companies don't typically continue to put in 60 to eight hour, 80 hour weeks, but they add a spectacular amount of value by focusing on the things that really have impact and then either leaving the other things off or giving them to other people to have their impact. How did you, I don't know, how much did you think about being happy along the way? Because I know, especially after the exit, after Interside exited and you know, even before that, there were, I think you've told me times that you were threatening to quit. <laughs> And all kinds of like, how did you think about happiness in relation to the goals of growing the company and, and all that? So for me, I needed to enjoy, like call me a workaholic would be the old term, right? That I, I had to enjoy what I was doing at work. And so there were times when, yeah, early on from a management standpoint, I'd been over-promised and, and under-delivered, right? And, and even through to the exit, right? At the time of exit, one of the three partners really did a job to try to keep me whole and even keep the other employees holes. And the other one just took their money and ran. And that was kind of this step in time in my life that I'd realized that money really, really impacts people's thoughts process and the way they act because these weren't elfish people. They'd been reasonably good to me through the process, but didn't really do much to pat us on the back for the success we had. Now, the good news is the next group that we were in within the Asserta world, that was very different in that, you know, the person who was running that 
was in, not independently well. He'd made his money beforehand. So this wasn't trying to make him richer. He had a, you know, he wanted to have a company that was worth over a billion dollars, but, and that drove some of his decisions, but that wasn't, so he would have a billion dollars. It was just so he'd have another checkbox on his resume effectively, which was nice because he was, you know, the people involved with that were a little more generous with some things, a little easier flowing. But, you know, the one thing I learned early on was if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. Mm. And it doesn't matter who you're dealing with, best friends, not best friends. If you don't have it clearly written down, don't expect it. And it's money related. Don't expect it to come in later. 90% of the time, you know, a person has an option of keeping a million dollars in their bank or giving you a million dollars, even though that would only be 10% of their net worth and 100% of yours, they're unlikely to take that into account. What did that do to your relationships with those people? I still pretty close to all of them because in the end, it all worked out. I rolled everything into the next version of the company and it went like five times. And Joey, in the end, I exited with as much as the other guys had the first time. So I was fine in the long run. But at the time, yeah, pretty tough kind of to deal with that, I think. And that was some of the things, like I would say most of my struggles around work where I was like, I'm going to quit because I can't take this were related to management financial issue. Not mm. so much being told what to do. Whereas, you know, if I look at my time in Slumberjay and other companies I've worked with, I quit those roles because I was kind of being told what to do or I couldn't do what I wanted to do successfully. Whereas the time within Intersight when I wasn't happy was really related to financial arrangement that was misrepresented several times, right? It, Revenue yeah. early on, promised a percentage of the company, and then, you know, after the fact, turned out that they diluted the company. So I got a diluted percentage rather than not the number that was given. That was huge hit, right? When you suddenly lose 10% effectively of what you think you're going to have, that's huge. Again, huge for me, nothing for them. And yet it pisses you off. Yeah. Mm. Any regrets along the way? Any regrets along the way? I think the one, it's often a regret, not always a regret. I had an opportunity at one point to move to Denver and up with a family and go there. And I didn't, I took a bribe to stay in Houston. Quite <laughs> I think in hindsight, I should have. But so for, for legal reasons, not a, not a legal, like an actual. Not bribe. an elite bribe. No, this was no, a raise. I got a. <laughs> and or bonus to stay in Houston. I, I got a massive annual bonus to stay in that. I okay getting that annual bonus right through the end of quorum. So paid for this house I'm in, but I basically spent the whole thing on the house I'm in. So I didn't actually put any more in my pocket. It just made my life here better. But the one guy who I took it to, who said, I'm not going to give you any more money because you know, that's stupid. You can't force my hand. He said, just go and move to Denver. And I, I should have actually taken his advice rather than the other two guys who said, no, 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 don't leave us. Just here, take all his money. Just from a lifestyle standpoint, I think my family would have been slightly different had we been in Denver rather than here. Like my son is usually outdoorsy, or I think that would have changed up. And I think I would have enjoyed that. So from a overall regret, I, I think that's the one thing that, you know, I had kind of planned my life. Like you're big on put a plan together and follow it. I didn't have a lot of a plan once I got to Houston. My plan mm -hmm. was for three years and move on. I'd always moved every three years. I've now been here. I moved here in nine, right? I've now been here 14 years. So somewhere along the line, I, I lost my focus on that, you know, keep the relocation going. Why, or how do you think that happened? 
I enjoyed the job a lot. I enjoyed the people a lot. And Houston's not a hard place to be, unfortunately. Houston's a really easy place to raise a family. It's super comfortable. It's affordable. It's a nice spot. Okay, we can't ski and we can't, you know, do going out and biking and stuff like that. But we found ways to still do that for six or eight weeks a year anyways. So it wasn't like we were really missing out. And I think that was kind of it. I mean, I, I did really like the success of the company. And so I think I traded my personal success and company success for like a quality of life could have been. Hmm. What about with the business? When I say the business, you know, Intersight, 3SI, you know, Alcerna, all of it, what would you have done differently? What would I have done differently? I mean, that's, that's always a, an interesting question, right? It's hard to say what I'd done differently. Like early on, not a lot. We did a pretty good job early on. I think later on, I think it would have been better to get ahead of some of the politicking between the U.S. and Canada. I liked having my autonomy, but I did a shit job of really managing the relationships to product development. So the one thing I would have liked to have mm. done, had a much better relationship with product development. And that held true forever. When they were early on, when we were their whole market, basically, they'd be like, oh, all we ever do is work for you. And you're like, well, but you don't actually give us what we ask for. <laughs> so let's redefine what we're asking for. And, you know, I think you've seen it as many times as I have almost in that you put these really detailed design documents together and you go up and you walk somebody through the whole process. And I'm like, oh, I totally get it. And then six months later, they show up and it doesn't do what they want. And when they describe what they thought you said, it's not really what you said. Yeah. And, and so I wish I'd been better at that communication with product development through my entire career. And, and I think that's still a challenge. I mean, if you look at Ocerno when we were doing operational scheduling, you think how detailed that design was and how many times we walked through the team on what that needed to do. and how it never really did the stuff it wanted. It always added more to it and tried to make it the be all end all of what they thought was needed versus what our clients actually needed. And that was, yeah. you know, that communication jobs. Yeah. Communication with product was, was always like one of the most scathing pieces of criticism that, that I remember ever getting came from Dean. And so this was early Intersight days. I think you, me, Rob. Several people had put a bunch of energy into designing. I can't even remember what the feature was. I think it might've been like offset frack interference or something. And we put together, I don't know, call it seven or eight slides that we were proud of. We're like, yes, this is the answer. And then we walked Dean through it. And then he says, yeah, it's pretty clear that not a lot of thought was put into this, but I get the idea. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay. But he, that was the thing is he got the idea, right? Like, there was a detail that, you know, we didn't think through the way that he would have liked, but he got the idea and then the feature got there. Yeah. Um, product development is, is another interesting one. Like the difference between, you know, having one or two all-star wizard sensei level developers and an army of them. Yeah. I know that I'm very fortunate to have been around Dean Stewart and, and Josh Groves, but man, it's. It's wild. I know y'all argued a fair bit about, you know, hiring developers and speeding up and adding to the team to handle more stuff. What did you take away from that? I think, you know, if you look at what we did, 
and what those added on developers develop, it almost never worked. It's so hard to grow a software company from an expert who understands it, which is what we had in Dean, what you have with Josh, what Marak had with this guy called Don Jeffers, and try to work off design documents. It just gets lost along the way. And unless you're really, really agile in the feedback process, which companies can be, it comes off the rails. And the problem we had, we went to an agile process, but we didn't include the people in the field in that agile process. It was an agile development without including the people who knew what it was supposed to do. And that, that was the failure. I knew that early on in that Barack, which was the first company we worked with, you know, had a big US base, but our revenues weren't great. And the way we solved that problem of development communication is the president of the company, who was also the lead developer from startup, moved to Houston from mm -hmm. And when he moved to Houston, our revenues started doubling every year for the next three years in the US. We went, oh, I get it. You didn't want to put him in front of the clients. He wasn't that kind of guy. <laughs> the only thing that comes out of that is that he was in front of the EVP of Chevron's planning group in San Ramon and that guy told Dean, told Don Jeffers that he was going to be flipping hamburgers in a year. And, uh, and three years later, he was flipping hamburgers on his deck in, uh, in Barbados with his boat parked up to the back of it. So that was right, but it was right in the wrong way. <laughs> Two very different interpretations you know, flavors of hamburgers that you can <laughs> Yes, exactly. But, you know, I wish I had a solution for that challenge of how to develop within that framework. Now, people are working with a lot more on offshoring and outsourcing as long as the communication is good, you're okay. I think yeah. it's challenging. Yeah. And, and I don't know, Josh and I have talked about this quite a bit, but it seems like there's a couple of philosophies on software development. One is it's very pragmatic and practical. You have a scope, you have a problem that needs to solve. You break that down into features and then you describe and design the features and then ship them out. And, and I think that's one approach. And then the other is much more of a creative endeavor where you're kind of exploring the problem space and the possible solution space. And that's where those things that, that one button in that one place that does that one thing just unlocks, makes 10 features irrelevant. How do you think about that? I think if you look at how companies start and how software starts, it's almost always in that creative space. But if you aren't in that creative space, it's really hard to do a big design. There's a very few cases of software that have really excelled in multiple generations. And you can go back to almost any piece of software, look at, look at windows, mm. you know, the number of times they got it wrong. And this is Microsoft with, you know, incredible process and everything else. Like think of windows me. I mean, there were certain versions <laughs> that like completely sucked because they weren't working it all the way through and hadn't spent enough time kind of working on what was needed. Every single company can get in that loop where they think they understand what's needed and they go and build it and it just isn't quite there. I don't know how to deal with that. I mean, I just, you know, there's lots of times when people fail and not so many people are successful. You know, SAP yeah. is one exception to that, but it's just this monster behemoth that takes little tiny parts at a time. And when they come up with a whole new one, you know, they get a couple of people to spend millions and millions and millions to try to make it right. And then it finally works. Yeah. Drastically changing. Whereas I think, you know, within startups, you have to be able to say, okay, let's start over and, and change everything. And, and to do that, you have to work in some kind of creative mode. One thing that I've seen is people get too, they get too close to customers almost. 
and they listen too much to their problems. They listen to their ideas for those solutions. And there's a distancing that needs to happen. You, you need to, you know, get close so that you really understand the problem and the needs and, you know, what they're trying to do. But then when you're actually coming up with the solution, it feels like it's healthier to get the hell away from them. <laughs> yeah. That, that, and make sure you're dealing with a broad enough client base. Yeah. Now, when I first moved to the U S I was in charge of creating a reserve solution. And I went out and we talked to all our clients who were like, can't remember who they were, Unical, Chevron, um, Shell was probably in there, but like effectively six major, major U.S. players and saying, you know, how do you do reserves? And they all go, oh, we just take volumes, we put them in this system, we track the volume and then we document how it changes and all this stuff. And so we built this huge volumetric reserve system and realized that the clients that we had talked to were the only guys who would ever, ever buy that type of system, pretty much. Everybody else used Aries and just had economic cases flow off the backside and called that reserve. And yeah. so designed an incredible system for those companies. And in fact, almost all of them ended up buying it. I think all of them did buy it, but then we didn't get any other clients. And that was an interesting one that I learned very early on was we had thought we'd gone out and talked to the client base, but we had talked to our client base. Yeah. Was not taking it to that next level and really exploring what the bigger market was. Ever since then, I've really tried to step back and say, does this make sense for everybody? And really worked at trying to talk to everybody. And sometimes it does make sense if the pockets are, are deep enough and it only works for five companies, then maybe it's worth it if the value is there. But you better not assume that 20% of the market also needs it in addition to those five. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, that, you know, that tool didn't, wasn't a money loss for the company, but it was by no means what we were expecting on the backside. This should have been a huge thing we spent. I mean, literally that was in 98, I think. The job I had in Slumberjay was redesigning that tool to work better for the broader U.S. client base. And I yeah. quit the fact that development said, it, development said it, my design was wrong and the business guys said that development couldn't deliver it on time. And they were arguing back and forth across the table over who was going to make the project fail. And I literally started swearing through a pen at a window, it exploded and marched out calling them all idiots and not willing to do their job. They both wanted the other person to actually say needed to die. And if you want to kill something and you have the right to kill it, you have to kill it. You can't chicken out of your decision. And slip pissed me off. That was the night I quit Solar Day, basically. It was my birthday. Bad things happen on my birthday meetings usually. So I try not to do meetings on my birthday. <laughs> well, you've got what, eight or nine months till your next one. So you're okay yeah. for a while. <laughs> All right. One more of these kind of questions. And I want to switch up to some of the ones that other people sent. Is there anything you'd wish you'd done sooner or wish you'd abandoned sooner at, you know, the Osirna quorum days? Uh, done sooner. Again, I think that just comes down to work, working tighter with the Calvary group and understanding where things played. I think, you know, the one regret I have was you leaving over a very legitimate exit, like you exited for the right reason. And I tried to fight that battle and didn't fight it very well. I lost that battle around customer success that should have been, you know, I think both of us just thought it was such a slam dunk that there was no reason it shouldn't go. And I really thought we had presented our case and had I done enough research, I would have realized that there was no case we were going to present that was going to be successful. <laughs> it maybe warned us up front rather than set expectations of, of being successful. Yeah. 
and that was the thing for me. And I know we talked about this at length is people can withstand a lot when they're fighting the good fight, you know, fighting against, you know, their own organization to do what they think is right. But as soon as that hope that it'll actually happen is gone, it's really hard to stick around after that. Yeah. And you shouldn't, right? You believe that something should be happening. And that's why the small companies are easier to work with. If you believe something's supposed to be happening, you should be able to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I always empowered the people who worked for me with me to, to do whatever they wanted to do. Somebody came to me with a good idea. I wanted to let them go and do it because if they had a good idea and believed in it, most people will be successful given the freedom to do it. And as long as you define, you know, success being some improvement to the company, then that's great. And I think, you know, one of the things we had within the Acerna world is if certain people didn't agree that with a success condition or didn't like the people, it was very different, right? We'd gone from a company where people had nothing to do with it. It was really what they delivered. And okay, we had to get along. Nobody was going to get killed because they pissed somebody else off. Even the owners you know, were like that with me, right? In that, okay, we got upset about certain things and we got in big fights every now and again, but you still respected each other and you didn't stop them from doing what they wanted to do. You just complained about it a bit. Whereas we got that second piece, people were physically stopping things and undermining them. And, and that sucked completely. So I wish I could have done something about that. The one thing I wish I'd stopped earlier Way later on, when we finally transitioned into the Toma Bravo group, I was in charge of business development, all kinds of really cool stuff around MLAI, looking mm -hmm. at all really great startups, including some really awesome MLAI-based reservoir simulators, and spent a huge amount of my time and the people we were looking at time, and realized that TV was never going to let us buy any of those things again. So we had... Mm -hmm. One of the reasons T TB being Toma Bravo. Yeah. And one of the reasons we sold was he kind of ran out of money. The company who'd owned us before had a fund. We'd used a huge chunk of it to create what we were and got return. And they were willing to stay around, but they had already got their value out and we weren't be able to get more money from them. So our exit had to do with getting enough money to do something bigger. I was trying to define what that was going to be. And it turned out that we could buy somebody who had a good PE ratio. That made sense, but we couldn't buy somebody who was losing money. Every single AI ML was either not making any money or a startup. And I spent six months or eight months talking to these guys and doing stuff and kept bringing them forward and kept basically being told that oh, that doesn't quite fit. And then mm -hmm. eventually realized it doesn't quite fit, man. Don't look at those guys. We're never going to do that. And I should have realized that earlier. We all should have realized that kind of earlier. That wasn't necessarily the exit we wanted. It was. The exit that at the end of the day, once you go to that process, the exit is the exit that pays the most money. And yeah. they're quite the bully to push everybody else out of the market early and then lower the price on you after the fact. Um, so we got good money out of it. There would have been other players closer to the end had they not highballed and then come back. What about, this is what makes me think of this. So when we were talking about, you know, when I lost hope and had decided to quit, I stayed on until that exit from... Rubicon to Toma Bravo because I had some chunk of money that was, that was due to me at that time, that period where hope was lost, that the, the mission that we were on, the good that we were trying to do was just, it was just not going to happen. The gap between, you know, that loss of hope and the time that I actually quit, that was probably one of the lowest lows in my career. And, and for me, I, I was there for the money right. and, and for the people that reported to me. So if there was a way that I could help the people that were there 
you know, happier, you know, remove barriers, like help individuals and stuff like that. That was all I put energy into. I did my job, but they would have called it quiet quitting. I think yeah. if, if that was a thing, uh, which is a bullshit term, but we can talk about that another time. Um, that was probably one of the lowest lows I can think of in my whole career. What's yours? What's mine? Um, that's a, that's a tough one. I, you know, I think from a, from a lowest low, I think early, early on, actually, it was mostly just a, when I first got, so we were selling, when, when Merak was in, in sale process to Slumberjay, I knew all the Slumberjay guys in Venezuela, well, not all, but the software GeoQuest guys, software guys in Slumberjay. And, uh, I was friends with them and they all told me that we were selling to them. And I went, no, that's not happening. It's young, remember? And I went and called the CEO of our company who I was friends with and said, you know, what the hell? He's like, no, no, not happening, not happening. And next thing I know, all my friends, he didn't mind. And it took me two weeks before the announcement that Slumberjay had bought us came out for me to realize the reason they hated me is our CEO had called their CEO and their CEO had told them to keep their parking mouth shut because they were basically a violation of the NDA that they had signed. And we're telling me the truth. And instead of taking the truth and using it for good, I used it for bad. <laughs> occurred to me that point that, you know, it totally sucked because I lost some good friends in the process. I mean, they, they were really pissed because they, they told by their employer that they'd violated the NDA and were the worst of all worst. And really they were crying and I should, should have known the difference. Um, and it sucked because those were people I, you know, in the end, still friends with a chunk of them, but it took six months to recover that. And it was just really, really stupid of me. If there's a rumor out there and you're hearing it, decide how much you would know about it early and think about it more. That sucked. I remember being really surprised when we were talking about exiting and after I'd learned stuff, it is kind of wild, the, the types of things that you can and can't say and what you have to be careful about. Because in any other situation, you talk about all of this stuff with your friends and, and everything, but then these major financial events and exits and all that stuff, you've got to lock it down. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I don't, I don't know how many people remember this, but when we sold Intersight to 3ESI, there was a close date. I can't remember what it was, um, but several days before the close date, you could find the announcement online. The marketing, whoever had built the website to announce it, couldn't get to the site. But if you Googled 3ESI and Intersight, then that showed up as a Google, like one of the top results in preview. And man, I'm surprised nobody got fired for that. And it's hard <laughs> to keep all that stuff under wraps. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, that was a, that was a tough one. The other lowest low was when I realized we were selling 3ESI. We all went out to lunch at some Mexican restaurant off Woodway. I can't remember the name of it right now. Like Lonanaya. Cyclone and I got that back room, had this big party and like, I was almost in tears through this whole thing and nobody knew why, nobody knew what was going on. It was just like, cause we built this family and I really felt it was about to completely fall apart. Well, what's a miracle out of that is, you know, it stayed together fairly well for the next two or three years, but it did totally change the dynamics of everything as much as it was great financially, all that stuff. I think that was kind of. One of my lowest lows was this feeling that we were losing this family slash group we built that was just firing on all cylinders at that point in time. And emotionally, that was probably the lowest low work. I, I remember a lot of tears 
like through that time because it felt like a real chance that you know the good old days were over yeah right yeah it's very different right yeah and i think when when y'all first told me what was happening i had no fucking clue what was going on right i was doe-eyed i was i think i'd been a manager for like a year i was like i'm just starting to figure things out and like oh shit this is a new thing to figure out but yeah i think the gravity and the how much things would change didn't set in until we were all crying in our margaritas yeah. <laughs> what do they call them? The green monsters or something there? And those were just yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> that, that probably helped the tears flow. The same thing raised for me was John Allen, right? So portfolio decisions, it had sold into three SI before that. John Allen was in Venezuela in the late nineties. Always saw him as a mentor. So I had the ability to go talk to him about what their experiences were and where they were. And he really made that transition easier. You know, he was a great guy to have on the executive team. Our time on the executive team together was great. Probably the second lowest low is when he quit. Because I recognized, I knew why he quit. And it wasn't because he was tired of doing what he was doing. Right. Yeah. It, was, it was the same sort of thing that forced you out at the end of it. Dolls. And, and when you realize those things are almost impossible to get around, right? Effectively, it was a leadership challenge. And yeah. you weren't going to change the people who were causing him to lead. They weren't going anywhere, no matter what happened. I lost, you know, we lost John Howell. We lost John Merritt to the mm-hmm. same eight, you know, who was running Australia Force at the time and really good friend and excellent manager, super successful compared to person who kept that role. And then you, right. We, we lost what I thought were three of the best people in the industry because of stupid personal shit. That was the family that didn't exist anymore. There's a lot of ways you could describe John, but like one of them is, you know, he's an absolute force against anything stupid happening. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was a big deal when he left. That's for sure. So what are you doing now? What am I doing now? Skiing. Uh, I'm dabbling in a few things. I'm doing some work, basically two or three different startup businesses that rents it. So minorly invested in a couple of them. And so trying to make sure those investments are going in the right way and helping those guys with how do you build and, and grow to the next phase across those companies, not looking for opportunities, but opportunities seem to knock. So right now looking at maybe helping another company who is kind of halfway along in the software bid, look at what it takes to be successful as a incoming us oil and gas software company. That's a new thing. This just kind of come up the last little while. We'll see where it goes. But if that plays out, that would be an advisor part-time role, which would be really cool. Uh, I like helping people still. I like taking advantage of my knowledge and, and helping people be successful. So I don't see that changing on that side of the work world. The other one is we've talked about it quite a bit. I really want to give back to other people. So I keep looking at, you know, how to take some of my non-work skills, you know, a carpenter, et cetera. And, and help people who need it. And that, that all came out of, I was skiing one day with these people and they, they couldn't save up $2,000 needed to fix their master bathroom, which was falling through the bottom of their mobile home. Like how do people have that kind of problem? You know, people yeah. did obviously, but that, that just seemed too much that somebody couldn't solve for them yeah. or shouldn't be some way to help people. They were struggling hard, working hard people just hard to make ends meet sometimes. And so I wanted to get in the business of 
helping people do that kind of stuff. So I do some work with Habitat for Humanity, those kind of things, and I'm enjoying that, but I kind of wanted to take it to the next level where I was closer to the, to the face than just being a cog in a, in a wheel, basically. We'll see how that goes. One of the problems is I'm, I'm looking at moving to Colorado, so I don't really want to, I didn't really want to get that going full speed here on the yeah. pretext. I didn't want to abandon something. So I think see a lot more of that as I settle into, into Colorado. I think there's a lot of need there to make up for a whole bunch of other systemic problems that cause those problems and cause there to not be resources for people. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going to be the person to solve the systemic problems. So I was hoping I could yeah. focus on some of the actual symptoms and just get them out of the way. I don't see you transitioning into, into Bernie Sanders role anytime soon. <laughs> I'd find the backbone for it. I'd, I'd tell the truth way too often. It doesn't work well. Usually my truth, right? There's always more than one truth in the world. Yeah. All right. So several people gave me some questions that they wanted me to ask you. They're all over the place. So I'm just going to, I'm going to fire them at you. First one, Rebecca Allison asked, how do you fly an aero shoot? Uh, okay. It's called a powered paraglider. You big fan on your back <laughs> and you put the parachute in the ground behind you and you run forward and the parachute comes up like a kite. And once it's over your head, you run faster and pull the fan on as hard as it goes and up you go. Beyond how do you fly one, I, I want to know, how do you not die? Like, how do you land? <laughs> and how do you, you turn the fan off when you come down and you pull on these brakes until you're going slow enough that you can run on the ground when you land and you run it there. <laughs> For anybody that's listening that doesn't know Peter, he's always doing shit like this. Whether it's like the one wheel board and like crashing it into your neighbor's rocks or landing on some rocks because you were paragliding over the ocean and then hit some more rocks. <laughs> there's always rocks involved in your, your always, style always, of play. Yeah. I keep breaking my shoulders, landing on things off of one wheels and pipe work. <laughs> That's not fun. I don't recommend it at all, but they're both working properly again. Um, <laughs> well, good. Flying, you just hope you don't ever fall out of the sky. You got no. a parachute that works for over <laughs> 70 feet. Uh, so between like 75 feet in the ground, that's where you don't want shit to go wrong. And I mostly stay in that range. I mostly fly at like five to 12 feet. If I can, I like being close to the ground. It's more fun. Related question. How many times have you lost your car keys? Every day for my whole life. I have this thing called <laughs> tile now and I can like click my phone and my cars go, car keys go beep, beep, beep. And so I have it in my wallet is the other thing I lose just as much. So I have one in my wallet, one of my keys, one of my wife's keys. And without those, yeah, I'd, I'd be stuck at home half the days these days. How many times on the times you take the boat out and take it out with the group, how many, how many times would you get stranded and have to call Terry or somebody to come out? That's a good one. Losing keys. The only time I really had a bad loss of my keys was when Caitlin decided she'd kick him into the lake, uh, <laughs> to the bottom of Lake Somerville. No coming back from that one. They sunk to the bottom along with her phone, my phone. And... Didn't somebody dive in and try to like. Yeah, we tried. We dove in and swam at the bottom and came up and hit our heads on the bottom of the dock and almost drowned and decided that was a bad idea. We got a magnet and all we brought up was like 10 pairs of rusted sunglasses. It was not good. And Terry did have to drive all the way out from Houston to come and give us keys and let us get home. I'm sure there was no no alcohol involved in, in any of these decision-making processes here. By the time you hit your head on the bottom of the dock, you were pretty sober, actually. You're right. We were we only weren't sober as we needed to be when we first jumped in. And it seemed like a good idea. 
But yeah, it should have never kicked that bag. All right. So just as random, but a totally different vibe. So Leslie Armantrout wanted to know what your favorite petroleum fiscal contract is. Okay. So back to my innovative phase. I got good stories on that, actually. I should tell you where to start with it. Favorite fiscal petroleum contract. I think my, my favorite was the Malaysian PSC from like, I think it's the 85 or something like that, which existed for a long, long time. And mostly because we were working with Hess at the time. And you have an oil cost recovery side and a gas cost recovery side. And then you can actually transfer unused cost oil or cost gas across between them after it's been used. And then after that, you can then transfer to exploration in other blocks. So it required a huge amount of complexity and nobody really understood, not nobody understood it, but it was very hard to understand and get it to work properly. So that was one of the hardest ones we've ever built. It took a while to get going. It was super cool. But back to inter- innovative. So this, yeah, let's hear the story. I want to hear this. We started innovative. Me and me and my friend Adam Vasquez started this company and we were looking for energy and innovation and we put them together. We got innovative solutions. So innovative solutions. And I went to a Daniel Johnson course who's like writes the Bible on petroleum fiscal modeling. And we were trying to get him to kind of authorize our company or become a partner. And so I'm in this course with him. I hand him my business card. He looks at it. He goes, innovative solutions. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. And we'd even like incorporated as at that point. And so that night we didn't have internet and the thing. So I went home and started Googling this thing in 2004 and, uh, for 2001 and realized that innervate is a word used in psychological terms to remove all energy from. So drugs innervate people who are manic or their ones. It clearly yes. you know, not for you what it meant. So we just a <laughs> company that was to remove all energy from other people's solution. I can think of a couple of energy software companies that should have picked that name. Yes. So we dropped the R <laughs> innovative rather than innovative. Um, but never been more embarrassed in my life. He just looked at me like, you guys are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and this is as you're hoping that he'll be an advisor or. Yes. Yeah. To get him to partner with us. He's like, who are these morons? Really good guy. We did work together quite a bit later, but, but at the time I thought. So the, I guess that's one lesson is when naming your company, make sure you Google all the words. There's a related one I heard about like logo design and graphic design. Apparently there's a, there's a penis and swastika test that you want to run. Right. So you take whatever you've designed, turn it every direction and make sure it doesn't look like a, a dick or a swastika. Yeah. Or he checked it and it was available, but it was totally available as a, you know, we got the domain and everything. I mean, it was great. Um, it was reason it was available. <laughs> it's a reason it was available. That's funny. If you could give one piece of advice to people that want to be both successful, you know, whatever that means to them and happy along the way, I'd love to hear it. Cause you're, you're somebody that, you know, you'd get stressed out and pissed off and like any human would, but Ever since I've known you, like you seemed happy, like despite shit going on, you'll tell me that you're depressed. I don't know how much of that is just a mask that you're putting on, but you don't seem like the type of person that just ends up in a grind, ends up in a really shitty place for very long. So I think, I think what you have to do is to find what your idea of success is early. And for me, it was like, you know, work, always been work hard, play hard. Like in university, I had robot controlled cars and all kinds of stuff. And we went and 
you know, we worked hard, we played hard. We were always a lot. We used to go to spring break. We used to drive down to Indiana for the weekend to go caving. You know, if there was some way to spend my time that wasn't school, we were doing it. And we spent enough time doing school that we were there. I spent no time doing nothing. And I think if you have a plan and you stick to it and you just make sure that you don't get stuck, it's so easy to have a plan on where you want to go in life and what you want to do and end up liking what you're doing enough not to stick to your and that was it early on i mean i changed my job literally sub every two years the whole way through and that worked all the way through till 2011 12 when i was doing the enterprise stuff and even then the job changed to some degree right it wasn't like i was always on the same grind but early on in my career changing often and having a conscious plan to change often was well worth it you don't have to change companies necessarily. I know people who did and were highly successful. I know people who didn't and were highly successful. Everybody I know has changed their roles a lot. It sounds like making sure that you're not kind of getting tricked into feeling too comfortable or settling when it's not really the thing that you want. Yeah. And it depends what your plan is, right? But for me, I never saw my ability to have happiness in my life without having happiness in my job. And I believe that early on. Merak as a company taught us that we could have a really good time at work and have a really good time out of work. And so mm -hmm. we said, I wanted to make sure that I was having a good time at work. And if I wasn't, I, I moved on. And that was part of my plan was that happy work, happy life. Some people aren't like that. Some people are happy to have a super happy life and work is just the thing that enables it to happen. I could never be that person, but that wasn't my plan. But if your plan mm -hmm. is have a job that pays some bills and then do all this other stuff and, and all the other stuff is enough to keep you happy, then that's fine. Right? Yeah. But have that as do it intentionally. If you're going to do something in life, do it intentionally. Don't just do it because it's happening. Intentional plans and intentional changes make a huge difference in people's lives. Wise words. Mm. I think this has been, this has been good, Pete. Well, there's a lot of stuff that we talked about that we haven't talked about before. Yeah, and that's cool. I was hoping we'd get some we'd get some good stuff out because we've talked a lot over the years, and obviously, you know, you're one of my favorite people and massive, massive impact on me and our company and and everything. So, I've already thanked you for all that shit, but I want to thank you for coming on and doing this. I'm blessed. You know, you said, "How am I lucky, or do I hire the right people?" I think a combination, but I think at the end of the day, I'm super blessed that the people I've put around me were super successful and are super, super great people. I mean, and I don't know if I, I've kind of been lucky that I've done that. I still hang around with a group of 12 people from my university days. We still go on trips on a reasonably regular basis. And every five years, that whole big group goes and does something because we're all still close. And the same is true about a group at Iraq and the same is now true with a group at, at Intersight. I just get really lucky that the people that I work with and the people that I'm around I want to stay connected to. And I, I think for some reason, they don't mind me being connected. To them. So how do you keep those groups together? I don't, I make this incredible assumption that my absence doesn't impact my relationship with people. And then I just show up like Raj Sin's a good example. I knew Raj in Calgary back in the Iraq days. He worked with Palantir. He lives in Singapore. He came over here, called me up and he came out to Steamboat for five days. While I was up there and we hung out for five days with another guy, which was one of my college roommates who was out skiing with me for a month. And these are guys I won't talk to for a year at times. And yeah. yet when we talk, we're, we just feel like we're 
still best friends. And I don't know whether that's the fact I, I got short-term memory challenges, so I only remember <laughs> what happened a long time ago, so I'm always happy to be with these people or, or what. I would love to be better about staying in touch with people and making sure those relationships are well-maintained. But what I find amazing is when I ask for those people to partake in that friendship again, they're all there. And we can go spend a week together, a weekend, or go wherever. And I think I'm just blessed that I've picked really nice people to be around over my life. How often do we talk? Nowhere near not enough, but I still consider you one of my best friends. So yeah. When we talk, we snap right back into it and there's no, yeah. If anybody listening wants to reach out, can they? And if, and if so, yeah. how? For sure. Easiest way is LinkedIn. I think it's Peter Tyler and then look up think Peter Tyler and Intersight, put those all together or a certain it'll hit my profile and I'm happy to connect. And you'll, you'll see it between one and 130 business days after they, they send a message probably. Might not be the next day, but quite often it'll be within a week for sure. I'm not every day anymore, but I do watch it because um, I do get notifications through there. Anything else? No, that was awesome. Appreciate your time. Super awesome. proud of what you're doing with pod two. I think it's, it's impressive. I like the book in the background you've, you've thrown in there. I was supposed to have my copy here and hold it up so you can sign it on that page. Uh, yeah, I will. We'll have to get together at some point. I'll have to do that. I'm going to miss this tomorrow, unfortunately. I'm out. We'll get together again very soon. Thanks again, Pete. This was the Achieve and Enjoy podcast, episode number, I don't know. We're on YouTube. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, pod2.co is our company. You can sign up for emails there. I hope you enjoy your work this week.